definitely can attest that uh, prayer is real. And from that situation, there were many, many praises, many answers to prayer. And so I just want to thank you all for praying during that time. I also want to thank you for those of you who gave towards the senior trip. Um, That was astounding. I don't know if any of you have heard of the results, but basically the seniors got to go for free and have like $100 each of spending money left over. So uh, it's truly a blessing to be part of a giving church, and that's just one small area that we see that. But um, just wanted to thank you all who gave for that as well. Um, Title of tonight's sermon is going to be Keep Yourselves from the Accursed Thing. And uh, we're going to be looking in Joshua chapter 6 here shortly at what that refers to. I think that some of you probably already know the context, but this passage gives us a great reminder of something that we need to constantly be vigilant about in our lives every day, um, and that is keeping ourselves from the accursed thing. I have a couple questions for you. Have you ever been skydiving before? Or have you ever wanted to go skydiving? I don't know. Maybe, possibly. Uh, I haven't quite gotten to the threshold of saying I want to go, but I haven't been skydiving either. So, <laughs> uh, Or maybe you had a major surgery you had to prepare for, or uh, some other major assignment. Maybe it was a job or a task at work. And let's say just right before, you know, you're about ready to jump out of the plane if you're skydiving, or you're just about ready to go in for that surgery, uh, you know, you're just about ready to go in under the knife, or you're just about ready to begin that major task at work, and the instructor or whoever the person is next to you says, okay, um, just before, you know, you jump out of the plane, (laughs) there's one more final piece of advice I have for you. Whatever you do, don't pull this cord, or whatever it is, you know, let's say it's in your job scenario, you know, whatever you do, don't touch that button right there. You want to stay away from that button. Uh, You right before you go in for that major surgery, now you're going to want to make sure that you don't eat or drink anything 24 hours before, you know. We've all probably been given final instructions right before a big task was approaching. And in that scenario, we probably perked up our hearing. We probably thought, okay, I'm going to listen to this advice because this is important, okay? But what if we heard that information, we heard that instruction, and then we just proceeded to completely disregard it? You know, we jumped out of the plane. Nah, I don't need to listen to that. Who cares about this cord? I'm not even going to pull it. I'm sure that the chute will just apply on itself, right? Or whatever the scenario is. We could probably all agree that if a person were to do that, it's very foolish, and it probably could have very detrimental consequences. What we're going to see in Joshua chapter 6 is that there is a very similar warning that is given to the children of Israel that applies to us today. And from this warning and the subsequent actions that are taken after it, we're going to see tonight, first of all, the foolishness of engaging in sin. Secondly, the futility of trying to hide sin. And thirdly, the fallout from the consequences of sin. We're going to see how that impacts our lives and the lives of those around us. For our example this evening, in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, we're going to be examining the sin of Achan together. To help with this context, let's read together I'll read it out loud. You follow along from Joshua 6, verses 15 through 19. It says, And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. 
and ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So here we have Joshua speaking to the nation of Israel right before they're about ready to conquer Jericho. And uh, this is what I was referring to in that illustration. Uh, you got to imagine that the exhilaration of the children of Israel upon seeing the walls fall down was very high. They were probably all rip-roaring to get in there and do the task that God had given them. And yet, right before they're about ready to attack the city, what's left of it, uh, Joshua gives them this final command, this final warning, if you will. There's actually three commands here. Uh, First of all, everyone is to die except Rahab and her household. Second of all, you're not to take anything out of the city. If you do, there will be a curse upon you and the nation of Israel. And third, all of the silver, gold, and vessels of brass and iron are to be taken into the treasury of the Lord in the tabernacle. They were to be used in the service of the Lord. That's the reason why God wanted them to be kept. Um, If we go to verse 21, though, let's look at what the, the text tells us happened. It says that after this command is given, the people go in and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and women, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. And then farther on down from that, you have Rahab is rescued. They end up basically accomplishing everything that God had commanded in that passage. And uh, I'd like to point out the last verse of the chapter. It says that, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. I think that that's a very interesting phrase at the end there. His fame, Joshua's fame, is noised throughout the whole country. And I think that that's worth noting because I think that that will come up again in the future as far as it's Joshua's fame that's being noised abroad. This man, this conqueror, we need to fear him. That's what the Canaanites are all saying to one another. And we think at the end of chapter 6, I know that if you were reading this, you come off it thinking, this is great. Israel is now seeing firsthand how God is going to give them all of the promised land. And if they do what God gives them, what God commands them, this is going to be the result every time. They're unbeatable. They're unstoppable. And they would be right to think that only if they were to think of it as the Lord is the one that's going to do this for us because He is the one that did it. He is the one that delivered Jericho to them. And yet we come to chapter 7. And the very beginning of chapter 7 gives us the word but. All right. Whenever you're in a conversation or somebody's delivering a piece of news to you, Um, it's usually pretty uh, disheartening when you hear that conjunction. You know, oh, okay, there's going to be bad news attached to this somewhere along the line. And sure enough, that's what we have. In verse 1 it says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. We see three things from this verse as well. We see, first of all, the action of Achan inflamed the Lord's anger. God saw what he did, and God was angry because of it. That's a very astounding thing to think about, that God becomes angry at sin when it is committed, when it is performed, he is inflamed in his anger. And, and Achan became the object of God's anger. 
Beyond that, the nation of Israel became the object of God's anger as a result. And so, this first thing is just very important to understand that God's anger is kindled at sin. Sin brings the anger of God to the forefront. Secondly, this sin, notice it says that this sin was uh, of the nation of Israel. Basically, the trespass that's mentioned here, the word trespass, is the idea of treachery. Literally, that it's an elevated level of sin that affected the whole nation. Okay, uh, This was not just something done in secret like Achan thought. Okay, Not to spoil the story. I'm sure we all know where this is going, but he, he probably didn't realize it at the time, but this was an act of treachery. It was against the whole nation. And it was considered such by God. It owed for greater consequences as a result because of this treachery. And third, as I've already mentioned, but it bears repeating, it brought the curse that was on Jericho. Okay, let's not lose sight of the fact that the curse that's mentioned here was on Jericho. It was on the people of the land who had done wicked atrocities and deserved the punishment that they had received. And yet that same curse was now brought on on Israel, on Achan, because of what he had done. The curse was brought on the children of Israel because they had trespassed in the accursed thing. Due to the national scope of this curse, the hand of God's blessing left the nation of Israel. And at the time, they didn't even realize it. At the time, they were out conquering Jericho and relishing in the the victory, relishing in the miracle that they had just seen. Maybe in the case of Joshua and some of the others. They were relishing in the fear that they were hearing about around them. That the nation surrounding them of the Canaanites were absolutely scared to death that this is going to fall upon them as well. And in in that, they lost focus of the fact that something was already wrong. Something was already astray, awry. And yet, on continues the story. We're not going to take the time to read all of it, but I'm sure you're all relatively familiar with it. But let's just look down through chapter 7. We're not going to read the whole uh, beginning portion here, but we see that Joshua looks over and the next target is a small little town called Ai. And it literally is just nothing more than an outpost. It's nothing more than maybe a little fortified town on a hill that was meant to guard the trade route between Jericho and Jerusalem. You know, nothing significant. Maybe a few hundred inhabitants. Small little garrison. And so look at what the men say. In verse 2, Joshua says, go up and spy out the land again. Look at Ai, see what it, see what it uh, has. And then when the men return in verse 3, they say, let not all the people go up, but about, let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few. You can kind of sense the, the pride in that statement. All right? Don't send everybody over there. That'll take too much time, too much effort. Just send a few thousand men over there. We'll make this short work. All right. And Joshua, all we know from the rest of the passage is he, he sends them out. Okay? He doesn't ask God first. He doesn't um, do any kind of preparation for himself. He just Sends the men out. It says in verse 4, So there went up thither of the people 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And it says that 36 men perished in that engagement. 
And the result of this is very catastrophic. If you read down further, the whole nation goes into a time of mourning. All of the leadership, Joshua, the priests, they put on sackcloth. They put ashes on their head. They mourn for these men. They mourn for the fact that they have been defeated in this way. And I don't necessarily think it was just because of the number of men that died. I think it was the humiliation of the fact that they had a defeat in this light. But some might be even tempted to think, 36 men, I mean, that's one day of soldiers that died during the Tet Offensive. All right, That's half of the men that died during the Battle of Fallujah in Iraq. Those casualties are not very significant for ancient warfare. Why were they so distraught by 36 men dying? And I'd like to point out, what were the casualties after taking Jericho? The Bible doesn't list any outside of all of the Canaanites that are killed. It doesn't say anything about Israelites dying because I would contend that none did. That the victory was so complete, so miraculous, that not a single Israelite died in the taking of Jericho. Now, the fact that 36 men die from such a small little outpost out of the way got their attention. It made it very clear something is wrong. And that is why we see such an outpouring of grief and of dismay by the entire nation, but especially the leadership. Joshua then rends his clothes, showing how grieved he was. And he falls to the earth in verse 6, before the ark of the Lord until eventide. He and the elders of Israel put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou brought all this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And wilt thou do unto thy great name? And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Joshua is looking at this situation and he thinks that because this defeat was so pitiful that all the Canaanites are going to think, oh, well, why were we scared to begin with? Come on, let's all get together. Let's all band together and let's just kick them out. And from a human standpoint, that could have very well happened. The nation of Israel has always been small. Even today, with what's happening in the news, they're surrounded by enemies on all sides who would love to see them just pushed into the sea. The same thing was true here. And yet, what we are again seeing in this is that Joshua's missing the point. He's not realizing the fact that the problem is with Israel. The problem's not with God. God didn't abandon Israel because he just woke up that day and decided, no, I I guess I don't want to fight for Israel anymore. The problem was with Israel. And Joshua needs a bit of a wake-up call to realize that. So that brings us to verse 10. Because when we look at God's response, in some ways it's quite humorous. Notice in verse 10, and the Lord God, or sorry, and the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? <laughs> Not to be irreverent, but it's as though God just says, Get up. Get up off the ground. You're not taking this seriously. Because if you were, you probably would have been more cautious in the first place. And then God continues. He says, Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, 
and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. God is very clear here that His hand of blessing left a while ago. I don't know how long it was, but I don't think it was very long at all that this had happened since Achan had taken the accursed thing. But what we see is that God then illuminates Joshua's understanding. He tells him, Israel is at fault. It's your job now to make it right. Now, I find it ironic that in the midst of this conversation, God could very easily have just said right then, and it's Achan, go get him. All right? But we see here that because the sin was such a public matter, God wanted the entire nation to be involved in the process. Which is why God continues in His instructions to tell Joshua, you're going to gather the entire nation together. And then you're going to take them by tribe. And I will show you which tribe contains the sinner. And then you're going to take them by family. And I'll tell you which family it is. And then we will see who the real perpetrator is. Let us now consider, though, what the implications of this are in our own lives. All right? we, we will continue on through the story, but let us understand we're talking about a sin. We're talking about an action, a deed that was done that broke God's law, which is what sin is. It is any action that breaks the law or commands of God. And this action was done in a way that was deceptive, in a way that was treacherous, and it brought about some very serious ramifications. And when we living in this day commit sin, the uh, implications are really the same. It, it still breaks God's law. It still brings consequences. And so from this, we're going to look at the three things that I mentioned earlier. We're first going to look at the foolishness of engaging in sin. The foolishness. To commit sin is foolish. In fact, really, the Bible equates the two. It, it says that they're basically synonymous. That foolishness is sin, sin is foolishness. But in what ways could we see from this that sin is foolish? First of all, there is foolishness in violating a command that's given multiple times. So at the beginning of this, I pointed out the idea of, you know, right before you're about to do something important, somebody gives you a final command. And we need to take that seriously. Well, the same thing would have been true with the nation of Israel. If that, when they were about ready to go into Jericho, if that would have been the only time that they got that command, that still would have been enough. But how much more foolish is it if it's a command that's given three times in Scripture? If we look earlier, you don't have to turn there, but... I can at least give you where the other locations are. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26, it says, Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. That context of Deuteronomy 7, by the way, is God telling the the younger generation, the ones who were actually going to go into the promised land, who I believe Achan was part of. He would have been in that group that heard the law given that second time. And he would have heard what the accursed thing was already. And that he should not engage in that kind of action. And in that context, the Lord says right at the very beginning of the chapter, when you go into the promised land, you will not do these things. And this is one of the commands that is given. Later on, again in Deuteronomy, verse, chapter 13, verse 17, it says, And there shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand, 
that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of His anger and show thee mercy and have compassion on thee and multiply thee as He hath sworn unto thy fathers. So if you think about it three times, that the idea of committing this level of sin, this level of trespass was warned against. And yet, it still happens. It still takes place. It's foolishness. So foolish for a man who had been through the wilderness wanderings to have heard these commands already to continue in his action of taking the accursed thing. But we also see the foolishness in valuing the object of sin. And in this, we need to look at what was actually taken. Uh, If we look a little bit further ahead in chapter 7, verse 21, Achan is actually the one speaking here, and he says, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonianish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Sometimes, Satan uses ridiculous things to ruin the hearts and minds of men. Doesn't he? Objects that would be in and of themselves, you know, innate, you know, no harm at all. Be it a, a phone, a computer, uh, an empty glass bottle, you name it. An apple, or whatever the fruit was in the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry. I don't know if it was an apple or not. <laughs> but fruit in the Garden of Eden. Um, many different things. Often he uses money, wealth, promise of fame, sexual pleasure to snare the heart and bring one's mind into captivity. Yet, the object itself often remains so trivial. But yet, the act itself can bring about great harm and destruction. And it can arouse such powerful desires and lusts that give birth to the act of sin itself. If you would, please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 gives us the process that Achan already mentioned. Achan already mentioned what the process of sin really is, but James puts it a lot clearer. So let's look there. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. That bringeth forth there is literally the idea of giving birth. Giving birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, or when it is fully matured, when it's fully grown up, so to speak, it bringeth forth death. Achan's life is a perfect picture of that, is it not? He tells us in verse 21, I saw it. Okay, that was the temptation. He saw it. Ooh, that that looks pretty nice. The the Babylonian-ish garment, by the way, would have been a a very well-woven, probably very nice material garment. Probably one of the best garments you could have gotten in that day. Obviously gold, I mean... When hasn't gold been valuable? And silver as well. The silver, by the way, because it was in coins more than likely, would have been easy spending money. The gold, maybe not as much because it says it was a wedge. But nonetheless, he saw it. It looked very nice. looked very valuable. And then the next stage, I coveted it. That's the lust. That's the 
where he's really getting into dangerous territory. And then I took it. And that's the act of sin itself. Of course, we know the end of the story, more than likely. Spoiler alert, he dies, all right? (laughs) Bringeth forth death. The fact that this process is perfectly illustrated in the life of Achan is there for our example. That's what the New Testament tells us. These are written for our example. That we would learn from it as a believer and take note that this is the exact same process that could be meted out in our own lives. Maybe not to the same degree as what Achan experiences, but nonetheless, it's still an example for us. So how foolish is it for us to value the object of sin? What might the object of sin be in your life? In mine? That we need to beware Maybe to someone else, it's no problem. It's not an object that Satan would tempt you with. But for another person, it could be a deadly weakness. It's up to each and every one of us to identify what that object is and to beware it and avoid it at all costs. In fact, God's Word clearly commands us to practice what we might call spiritual surgery to remove ourselves from whatever that object might be. Matthew 5 is a great passage that illustrates this. It's also repeated in Mark, but I like the way that Matthew puts it. Chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members, one of thy body parts, should perish And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Obviously, the greater interpretation here is in regards to eternal life. All right? If a person is unsaved, Christ is telling them, you know what? Spending an eternity in hell is something you don't want to do. It'd be far better if you just plucked your own eye out than spending an eternity in hell. Or cutting off your foot. And we might think, wow, that's extreme. Okay? It is. But that's the point. Why suffer the eternal damnation in hell that you could avoid by simply doing something painful that's temporary. But nonetheless, the application can still be drawn that if my eye causes me to sin, that idea of if thy right eye offend thee, if my eye is causing me to sin because of what I look at and what I dwell upon in my mind, It makes sense to remove the object that is causing that offense. Same thing with your foot. Your feet take you places. If the places you go cause you to commit offense, you might want to get radical about keeping yourself from going there anymore. So what is it for you? Do you have difficulty not offending yourself, not sinning when it comes to your television use? The music you listen to, the things you look at on the internet. If you cannot control those lusts, eliminate the object. There is no degree According to what we've seen here, I mean, we're not saying poke your eye out, all right? Even though that is what Christ is applying here, I don't think that that is required. There are many steps that we could take, simple steps, to avoid and block out 
the object of sin if it is warranted. If we cannot be held accountable, if we cannot be responsible to remove the object of sin from our lives, how foolish are we? The degree of seriousness we apply to removing the temptation shows the degree of seriousness we have about the sin. Does that make sense? It shows how seriously we believe sin to be in our own lives with how seriously we treat the temptation of it. Now obviously, temptation's going to come to sin. But how we handle that temptation shows everything. Let us evaluate the seriousness of this in our own lives this evening. Next, let's consider the futility of hiding sin. The futility of hiding sin. First of all, let's examine the means of concealment. How futile was the means of concealment? Achan told us back in verse 21, right? They're hid in the midst of my tent. I dug a hole and I covered it back up with dirt. (laughs) Pretty pathetic, right? And yet, how many times do we do the same type of thing? What about Adam and Eve? I know, let's uh, grab some of those leaves over there and we'll stitch them together and we're good. Futile. Absolutely foolish. Jonah, I'll just take a nap at the bottom of the boat and I'll wake up in Tarshish. It'll all be good. The nation of Israel. We'll plant this uh, grove of trees over there so that nobody can see all the idol worship that we're doing, even though everybody knows that's what's going on. Mankind. Let's wait to do that until after dark and we can get away with anything. Christ even says it. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's not just in a spiritual sense. That is true in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense too. How much wickedness occurs at nighttime? Lots. Go to any city, downtown, at night. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. And that's why. Concealment. And yet, it's absolutely futile because... In their attempts to outwit God, we know the Scripture is very clear. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 28, verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You know, in the modern day, Like I said, people try to do a lot of the same things. They might think, well, if I I just delete that history, I'll be good. If I I use one of these newfangled VPNs on my computer, nobody will ever know what websites I've gone to. There's a lot of different ways we hear of that people try to conceal what they have done. And yet, God's word is clear. We can't outwit God. All those people that I mentioned, Adam and Eve, all it took was the Lord showing up in the cool of the day. He knew right where Adam and Eve were the entire time. He knew right where Jonah was. And he knows what each and every one of us have fallen short in as well. It's futile for us to try to hide sin. And finally, let's consider the fallout 
the fallout of hiding one's sin or its consequences. What was the fallout for Achan? Well, let's read, going back to Joshua chapter 7, let's read verses 24 to 26. In verse 24 it says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent. They brought all of them down to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. We see, first of all, that Achan lost everything. He lost everything, he lost his possessions. They took that silver, the gold, the garment. They even took his tent. I thought that was kind of interesting. Stoning a tent, I mean, wouldn't do much. But they took everything. Uh, It says that they even took his sons and daughters. He also loses his prestige. Now, I was trying to alliterate, but what do I mean by that? Well, if you read the entire chapter, you'll see that Achan is of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. It was the best tribe in Israel in some ways. And his line came from one of the five sons. He he was in a very unique position as a man of the tribe of Judah. If you look in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 7, this is the only other place as far as I could find, outside of the book of Joshua where he is mentioned. And that verse says, uh, Achar, the troubler of Israel, who transgressed in the accursed, uh, the thing accursed. So that was attached to him for perpetuity, like all future generations. And that verse, by the way, is in the middle of the generations listed in 1 Chronicles. And you know what? That family that he was a part of, there are no descendants listed after him. His line of that tribe ended. His prestige of being in the tribe of Judah, possibly one of the lines through which the kings of Israel would come, And the future Messiah ended because of the actions that he had committed. And then finally, and most obviously, he loses his life. He loses his life. All Israel stoned him with stones. And then they took a bunch more stones and they pile them up on top of him. And he remains a monument for generations to come as well. I don't know if the pile of stones is still there, but the valley is. still called the Valley of Achor. And you know what Achor means? Trouble. You know what Achan means? Trouble. He was nothing but trouble. In fact, it's a good possibility, don't quote me on it, but it may be that they changed his name because of all of this. And that's why he's remembered as Achan today. But nonetheless, that was the fallout for Achan. What was the fallout for his family? What was the fallout for his family? Well, quite obviously, it says in the passage that they were all brought to the execution as well. And some people cringe at this. They say, why why would God order for the execution of the children as well. Doesn't it say in Deuteronomy 24.16 that the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither the children put to death for the fathers? Yes, it does say that, but it also says every man shall be put to death for his own sin. There's a good possibility that the children were included 
because they participated in the concealment. Either way, no matter how you look at it, Achan's sin had disastrous consequences for his family. And the same thing is true for us as well. Our sin does not just affect us. It it goes beyond the boundary of our own lives. It affects everyone around us. It affects our family as well. And in the case of Achan, it brought about shame, hurt, and more than likely destruction as well. One note, this is just kind of a nerdy fact. I didn't see his wife listed in the list of things that were brought to be stoned. I don't know what that means. Maybe she either wasn't alive or maybe she was spared. I'm not sure, but just wanted to point that out. I did not see Mrs. Aiken listed there. But nonetheless, let's look at the fallout for the nation. The fallout for the nation. Aiken's sin, as we've already mentioned, affected the whole nation. And we need to understand that the national implications of sin are still in effect today. Second Chronicles 7.14 is clear that if the people of God, if people of a nation turn from their sin, God will forgive them. God will forgive the nation. And He will heal their land. But later on in that same passage, God is also clear that if you don't turn away from your sin, Judgment is coming. In fact, in the case of Israel, it meant that they would be removed out of their very land. America is not immune to these same predictions. We need to pray that God-fearing leaders will rise up and stand in the gap for our nation. And I'm mainly referring to pastors not politicians. It's going to be the pastors of America and the churches of America that get right with God that see this nation brought about in revival. Not politicians. But finally, since we are all in a local church, what could be the fallout for a local church if believers do not take seriously the commands to Stay away from the accursed thing, from sin. Well, sin in the lives of believers bring a snare. And if we try to tolerate it in our church, there will always be disastrous consequences. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Corinth, was very clear in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6-8. through Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and and truth. If there is sin in a church, if there is sin in a believer's life, it is as though you are polluting the whole. It can't just be isolated. It pollutes the whole. It affects the body, as would any other disease in the human body. And like it says there in 1 Corinthians 5, it must be purged out. The word purging there is it's a medical term. It literally means to cauterize a wound. You've got to get it all out. Treat it seriously. Treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. Don't glory in it. How many churches in America today are glorying in sin? Glorying in their inclusiveness, as Corinth was here. When in reality, there should be brokenness and there should be sorrow over sin, starting in our own lives, but also in the entirety 
of our church. So as we close, let us keep in mind how foolish it is to engage in sin. The futility trying to cover our sin and then finally the fallout that sin can bring in our lives. Can I ask you, have you kept yourself from the accursed thing? If not, confess it and forsake it. The Bible is clear. In fact, if we just go back to the verse from Proverbs, whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. How different would the story of Achan have been if he would have confessed right away? I don't know. I don't know if his life would have been spared or not. I don't necessarily think that that's really the point. The point is, don't hold on to it. Don't harbor it. Confess it and forsake it. I encourage you to commit to this this evening. Keep yourself from the accursed thing so that we may avoid the fallout that it brings and so that we can be a thriving, victorious church. That you can be a thriving and victorious Christian. Consider this final thing. When Christ returns, will He find here a church or a believer void of any offense, void of any spot or wrinkle as the Bible says, Or will there be something that will cause regret when we stand before Him at last? May God add His blessing to His Word this evening. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to spend time in Your Word this evening. I ask, Lord, that You would help us to seriously consider the uh, effect of uh, sin on, on our lives. And Lord, that we would treat it with seriousness, that we would confess and forsake anything in our lives that needs to be confessed and forsaken. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us a good remainder of the evening. Bless us as we spend time in prayer together a little bit later on. And we thank you for all you have done for us. And um, we pray now that you would um, keep us safe as we return home as well this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.